giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Millie Blackwell, president and co-founder of Showcase Workshop. Millie, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. So, Millie, where are you today? Uh, I am calling you from Greytown, New Zealand, and uh, that's about one hour north of Wellington, which is the capital city. Yeah. Do you spend most of your time in New Zealand these days? Um, actually, I spend most of my time in California, in, yeah. uh, in the Napa Valley, and that's sort of mostly been about 50-50 for the last four years, which mm-hmm. has been a, a practical and a legal consideration. You know, the mm-hmm. government will only allow me in the gates for half of the year. But um, just as of very recently, I've just gotten um, permission to stay in the U.S. for a couple of years. So oh, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, I'll be around. And I'm curious, what are some of the differences in sort of the business culture or climate between California and New Zealand? <laughs> That is such a good question. So one of the really practical things that comes up a lot is that in New Zealand, I could still pick up the phone, make a phone call to you know a relatively large enterprise, ask the receptionist, even if I didn't know who I was calling for, can I speak to the marketing manager or can I speak to your head of sales? And at least half of the time, if not more, I would actually get put through to that person. So wow. there's not the same sort of gatekeeper relationship that mm-hmm. we experience in California. That's a really practical example. And then on a, I guess, a broader sense, it is a more laid back kind of a culture. There's not the same sense of busyness or possibly even the same sense of urgency here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a less competitive marketplace, I suppose, is what drives that. So you started Showcase Workshop when you were just in New Zealand? Correct. Yep. I founded the company with, with three other guys, two developers, two technical founders, and another non-technical founder like myself. And uh, yeah, we were just totally based here. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of our testing ground, I suppose. Yeah. And so... I think first tell us what Showcase Workshop actually is, and then I'm curious, like, where did the idea come from and how did it come about? Sure. So I'll um, probably start with the flowery marketing version of what it is because I'm a marketer at heart. So um, we describe it as a sales toolkit, and its purpose is to be a replacement for ring binders, paper brochures, even um, briefcases and messenger bags, everything that a salesperson would normally physically carry around with them. So all of that is bundled up into the Showcase Workshop apps, and practically that's distributed out to the field, to the sales team, or out to CSRs, customer service representatives in retail stores. So I guess more technically it's content management tool. Mm-hmm. And it started life as I was working in a small advertising agency that whose primary client was BP, the oil company. Yeah, that was in New Zealand, and we were working a lot with BP in London at that time. And it was 2010, so when iPads were brand new, and we'd pitched this idea that instead of creating their schematic guides, so schematic guides, if you haven't ever worked in retail, they tend to be these big tomes of maybe 100 pages, 200 pages. They get printed out and sent out to the sites, the BP service sites, and they tell the site staff how to run promotions, what they should be displaying, where the signage should go, which product should support the signage. So that could be a couple hundred pages every other month. And if there's a mistake in that, instead of just reprinting the page with a mistake, 
and sending that out to sites, they will typically reprint the whole thing because oh, wow. it's just too much room for more manual error if they just send the one page. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were spending six figures on this document, just that one document every year. So they could have bought iPads, started distributing the content out and easily recovered the cost in a year. But at that time, was when you still couldn't use your iPhone or your phones on the forecourt. So we fill up with gas, you still couldn't use your phone. So the instinct instinct was, well, you probably can't use an iPad on the site either. So they kind of rejected this idea, but BP were sponsoring the London Olympics in their forthcoming year. And they said, well, what if we, we did something like this as a way to get information about our Olympic sponsorship out to the field sales team? Mm-hmm. So that initial idea pitched for site uh, information, it rolled into something for the sales team. And that's really where Showcase started life as a way to get information from head office out to the field sales team. Were you able to take anything from that work you created at the agency into Showcase Workshop or did you need to start from scratch when you decided Showcase Workshop was a thing you wanted to pursue? Yeah, we were able to roll a little bit of it in. So mm-hmm. my my boss at the time became one of the founders of Showcase um, and myself and then two of the guys who had worked on the technical project as well. Yeah. It just so happened that the agency managed to retain the, the IP in that first scratchy project. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to roll that over. So how did you know, given that that was your founding team and it was your boss from the agency and everything, like, how did you know, how did you all know, okay, we're going to do this? Like, tell me about that, that point in time. Was there a specific point in time you're like, okay, we're doing this and the decision was made or was it more of an evolution? I wish there was sort of a big bang moment that I could Mm. describe when we decided, but I think we all knew that we all had this instinct that tablets were going to explode and that they would be a great business tool. And this is really an opportunity that we should seize and, and create something for that. The technical founders as well had been working with larger enterprises in their previous business. And so we all had this instinct that businesses would jump on top of tablets and would use them they would become a great business tool, which they have. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. did you get outside funding to get started? We initially just put some money in all individually. Mm -hmm. And then um, we have raised, I suppose, what would, well, friends and family Mm rounds. And then um, what would probably be considered a seed round, but not through any sort of formal organizations, just from people that we knew. So that first everyone putting money in individually seems like an important moment in time uh, in terms of the decision-making process of everyone buying in to the fact that, okay, this is something we're really doing. Yeah. And we made it, you know, it was sort of an amount of money for me at the time that, that meant I was serious. And I think the same for everybody else. And did you all leave your jobs then? Two of us completely left our jobs and my old boss still runs his agency. Actually, he subsequently became my husband. So my husband still runs his agency. <laughs> and um, one of the other founders stayed in his job at that time as well, but eventually left. And so as you move forward, you know, you said we had a feeling that this was going to be big. Were you right? <laughs> well, we were definitely right about tablets and sort of considering the competitive marketplace of all of the different, not only our direct competitors, but all of the other ways that organizations can solve this content distribution challenge, which I guess has always existed for them. But we were definitely right that this would be a problem to solve. Mm-hmm. 
if you can say, did you immediately get customers and who were they? Yeah. So we just sort of immediately tapped into our networks Mm -hmm. of people that I'd worked with the agency and my other co-founders had worked with. And as I said earlier, New Zealand's such an open business environment that I just out of naivety almost just got on the phone and thought, well, who would, who would this work really well for? And I started with automotive companies and I hadn't actually worked with any before, but I managed to get a meeting at Hyundai and did I say that in a way you could understand? Hyundai? Yeah. 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 It's, not, it's not how I pronounce <laughs> it, but words. I could, I could understand it. So how would you say it? Hyundai. Hyundai. Yeah, there you go, with them. And um, their marketing manager almost immediately said, yeah, I want this. And then we were also able to get, we didn't have BP in New Zealand using it at that time, and we kind of couldn't honestly put BP on the letterhead at that time. But um, we managed to get another oil company, basically the Shell brand here in New Zealand. So we were right out the gate with these two great brands that we could start talking about, and those just made... They became door openers, really. I could ring, then ring and say, this is something that Hyundai and Shell are using. Right, right. Yeah, people would more easily agree to a meeting when you start with those kinds of things. That's definitely true. I, I mean, honestly, even for this podcast, when we can say, would you be interested in being on this show? We've had these other great guests. It lends so much credibility and we do it you know, for sales and marketing. Um, you know, People want to see those peers or people that they aspire to be involved with at the table and that encourages them and it gives you a sense of relaxation right that Mm -hmm. it's almost like it's been vetted by your peers or people you aspire to be like and so yeah so one of the things that can be a struggle for people when they're first getting started businesses when they're first getting started is to figure out how much you're going to charge how did you go about (laughs) that Oh man, I wish this was a better story, but we just, uh, we kind of went, well, what do SaaS companies charge for things? And literally researched a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. other products, both in our competitive space and outside of it, what is in zero um, accounting software is a local hero. So um, we sort of started there, what did they charge? How does Showcase fit into the landscape based on, you know, zeros charge and zero your accounting software becomes, this isn't an ad for zero, your accounting software becomes a very integral part of your business. So how how does Showcase sit versus your accounting software? And so what should our pricing be relative to that? And that's how we decided on our pricing, or at least for the per user per month, smaller subscriptions. Uh And then we just kept testing on uh, the enterprise level. So I think we might have started our enterprise pricing around $2,000 a month Uh and we wanted to test exactly how many users a customer would put into an enterprise plan. So now we're at 6,200 a month and um, it's just sort of gone up over the years over we've tested how many users are they going to really put into this? How much are they going to stretch it? And therefore how much do we need to charge for that? So from my understanding, it's not the strategy you use is not uncommon, even though it feels like, Oh, we're really just making this up based on what everyone else is doing. (laughs) It's not that uncommon. But it sounds like you didn't really factor in your costs into the pricing or what pricing you would need to set in order to be sustainable for your business. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, if I knew what I knew now back then, obviously, we'd probably all make pretty different decisions Mm -hmm. uh, eight or nine years in the past. But uh, 
we definitely didn't start with any sort of model like we didn't know what our customer acquisition cost would be. We didn't know what the customer lifetime would be. We weren't making any good decisions based on ideas about what those things might be or what sort of payback period we wanted to work to and how quickly mm -hmm. we could advance that. None of those decisions were being made. But if I was starting again now, those are all the kinds of things I would try to map out in the early days. But yeah, it was really just a put a finger in the air, make a, make a call. And you have that sense. I guess, again, another naivety thing, which is just, oh, well, it's just on the website, so we can just change it. If we want to change it tomorrow, <laughs> we'll just change it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It is hard to change pricing. I think that even if you're sort of guessing, breaking it down in terms of the levers that you actually have, and then even if you're guessing at each one of those, <laughs> then when you discover, oh, we've got this wrong it's easier to pinpoint where you need to maybe make an adjustment. Oh, our cost to acquire customers is higher than we guessed we made it up, but now you know that's where the difference is as opposed to some other lever for pricing that you might have being different. Yeah, and in terms of the pricing, it being difficult to change pricing, I mean, it obviously has a practical flow on effect that we have to set something new up in the billing engine or we have to change things on the accounting side. But for us, we've just always kept our clients grandfathered into the plan that they started on. So there's never really been a case of having to go back and tell mm -hmm. a customer your price is going up. Some have had price modifications, but it's not been you're going, you are now being changed to this plan that we've decided on. How has the pricing changed over time? Well, actually, the basic pricing has gone down. So we started at $49 a month per mm -hmm. user, now as low as 20. So the basic pricing has gone down. And it's as we've focused more on enterprise, and as we've understood the cost of acquiring an enterprise customer, the time it takes, uh, the burden on help desk and customer success, those true costs that come into not just acquiring them, but having them be successful and maintain their success with the product. That's how the price has grown on the enterprise side. You use the term, you know, enterprise customer a, a few times, and I, I just want to dig into that a little bit. What makes, at least for Showcase Workshop, what makes a customer an enterprise customer? So for us, it's about user volume. Mm -hmm. So once a customer has more than 600 users, we stop billing on a per user basis and we bill at a capped rate. And so for us, it's about user volume at that 600 mark. And this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are there lots of companies in the world that have more than 600 salespeople? So to clarify, it's not always the salespeople. Mm -hmm. So there will be a management team involved in using it as well, definitely a marketing team. And for our customers in the retail environment, I guess they still are salespeople, but there's customer service representatives. So i answer your question a long way. If I dig into just the space that we're focused on at the moment is we've come back around to oil companies now. Okay. After Once they finally let go of the phone thing on four courts in 2016, late 2016. So we brought the idea back around. So in the US, there are 200 chains of fuel and convenience retail that have more than 200 stores. And if you think about the number of staff that a typical store would have, you know, five, maybe more at bigger sites. So just in fuel, you're already talking about 200. And then if you consider all the other industries out there. Mm -hmm. So there, I mean, I don't have a number, but there are um, a lot of companies out there with the potential to have more than 600 users. Yeah. 
So are the enterprise customers that you're getting, are they primarily coming to you or are you actively, you know, selling to them and doing outbound? Yeah, we're still actively going to them. And in the US, we've been having some success with a direct mail program. Mm -hmm. It has had a little bit of a hiccup in the last month with the pipe bomb scares. Our direct mail is in a little box. So I think we're we're having a little bit of a deliverability issue at the moment. But we have been sending out direct mail packs, which are New Zealand chocolate. And they have kind of a humorous uh, little card and story in them about all of the New Zealand things that we could talk about if I came to see them, Savion Blanc and Lord and Flight of the Concords. <laughs> I'm curious, is selling to salespeople, is there any trick to selling to salespeople? <laughs> well, I mostly actually sell to marketing people. Okay. But in the odd instance, I do sell to senior salespeople. And I will say this because now that I consider myself a salesperson, I know that I am very easily sold to. (laughs) But a good salesperson can sell something to me. So not even that good, like someone who's just seems like they've made an effort can sell to me really easily. And I think with discussions with other salespeople, they're the same. Sometimes it's nice to just have the burden taken off you to be selling and to enjoy the experience and appreciate some of the effort that the types of effort that another salesperson would make. So selling to salespeople, I think if you make an effort is actually surprisingly easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> Good. So when it comes to building the, the technical side of the product, it sounds like you had worked in an agency before and you were comfortable building a product, a digital product. Yeah. Well, I had had one experience of building a digital product Mm -hmm. and it was for a tool that auto-generated point of sale signage. Okay. Well, it didn't exactly auto-generate, but all the information could be input, Mm -hmm. a preview would be generated, and then the designers could create the high-res version of that. So that was a tool that I had created just for one customer or had worked on creating just for one customer. But Showcase was my first foray into a separate digital product, but uh, not so much for the other founders. And what are some of the lessons that you learned about that? (laughs) All right. So I think it sort of would come back to my lessons about creating something for enterprise. So I guess when you typically think about creating things, you think about your end user and you think about what they will want what the product will mean to them and the problems that it's going to solve for the end user. But because we had really set out from the outset to create something for enterprise, we realized quite quickly that the person that we were selling to was definitely not going to be the end user. Mm -hmm. So how could we solve more problems for the person that we needed to sell to as well as continuing to solve the problems for the end user? And for us, that became the analytics. So our buyer is typically a marketing person and our end user is a salesperson and the marketing person wants to get all this great collateral that they've created to their sales team. They want to monitor it. They want to know that the sales team's got the right version when it's up to date and they want to know what they're sharing with the company's customers. So for us, it became about really investing into the analytics engine so that we were creating more value for that buyer as well as maintaining the value for the end user. You mentioned the first customers that you got. Did you get them before you had the finished product? Yeah, we had a really rough iOS app Mm -hmm. and Windows was coming and Android was coming and the back end was 
I think actually we did our first two customers implementations for them because the back end was so rough at that time. Mm-hmm. But we knew that if they had the iPad app, they would have a good experience. Mm-hmm. So probably wasn't even minimum viable product when we sold those first couple of subscriptions. But you sold them. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Then did your estimates as a team match how long it actually took to get that first version to the customers? I think so, yeah. We weren't sort of surprised to be outselling it without the Android and the mm-hmm. Windows app being available. Mm-hmm. I don't remember having any feeling of, oh my God, just being really stressed out because we had sold something and part of it wasn't ready. Right. So that's the start of the product. Where are things today in terms of the tech side and how you manage the improvements that you're making and that over time? Yeah, so we describe our model as fairly high touch. And again, it goes back to that our buyer is not always our end user. So we have created a really high touch model for onboarding and for long-term success where We are in touch with them every month for our largest customers. Myself or one of the other sales team will go and see them in person. Mm -hmm. So we have factored in this really high touch model. And as part of that, every time we see our customers, we ask the question, what's one feature we can deliver to you that will keep you happy for another 12 months? And when you ask a customer to just tell you one thing, like the thing that's top of mind somehow just manages to spill out of them. Mm-hmm. And from asking that, you know, and gathering all those data points from customers, we always use that to inform our roadmap. So there's things that we want to do on the technical side, things that we want to upgrade the way that the app looks. We want to modernize things. But in terms of the features that we add, they are almost exclusively driven by what our customers ask right. for or the combination of what customers are asking for. Has there been a scenario where you asked that question and then they gave you an answer and you couldn't deliver what they were asking? Um, More than once, definitely. (laughs) How do do you manage that? Well, I think because from day one, we have built a relatively close relationship with our customers. When we ask that question, we're definitely not saying, tell us what you want and we'll give it to you. Uh So it's not really a negotiation, but sometimes we'll have to say, look, that is a great feature. And we never really get asked for anything that's totally crazy. Sometimes people ask us for a really good feature, but it, we can tell that it's very specific either to their business or their industry. And just to be able to, I guess, just be honest about that and say, we do think this is a good feature and we can certainly see why you would love it and why it would be valuable to you. But we have to think about the product for all of our customers. Right. And we just honestly can't say that other customers are asking for a feature like this. Right. And has that gone well, that conversation? (laughs) It hasn't gone badly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I read the statistic the other day that 68% of people say they've churned or they've left, they've stopped doing business with the company because they felt that the company was indifferent to them, indifferent to their needs or requirements. And so we are not wanting anybody to ever feel that we are indifferent to their request And we would always make the effort to explain to them why we couldn't fulfill that request. And sometimes we just say, okay, what's the second next best thing that we could deliver? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think this is one draw or pitfall when you have enterprise customers who are big, is they can dictate your roadmap in ways that might not be healthy for your overall customer base. But it sounds like the way your pricing works, it's not possible for extra large companies to become too big of a a portion of your revenue because it is 
capped, right? The monthly fee, or does it keep on going up depending on their size? It's capped. Yeah. yeah. Right. And yeah. do you do that intentionally so that there isn't one customer that <laughs> is making up the majority of your revenue? Or are there other yeah. reasons why you do that? Yeah, it is mostly about making sure that no one customer is too much of our revenue. Although, because we have a service portion as well, it does work that some customers do represent a bigger portion. Some of those enterprise customers do represent a bigger portion than others. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain point where there is not a lot of extra cost for us to keep serving a customer. So it makes sense for us to supply a capped price. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the services side, which is that loading in content, getting content ready and, and helping them manage the distribution of content or is it other services as well? It's mostly about the content. So our customers all still create their own content, but we often help in the graphic design side with templates. Mm-hmm. So when you actually look at a showcase, it looks sort of like if you took a Google Drive and overlaid a slide layer, it looks like you're looking at an app but it's really a collection of files and there's layers within those files. So the services side will help customers with those interfaces or those templates. And we also allow our customers to put HTML5 content inside of their showcase. So Mm -hmm. if they want to do, typically it's used for calculators or dynamic forms or questionnaires. And if customers don't have that capability in-house, then we'll help them with that as well. How do you balance the priorities uh, or do you find it difficult to balance the priorities of the SaaS business with the services business? We don't. I mean, SaaS is our primary source of revenue and services is really just more about customer success. Mm -hmm. And so the services revenue doesn't make up enough for it to be a challenge and we can manage the load of what we have on the service revenue side. Yeah. So going back to where we started the conversation, did you start going to California for life reasons or business reasons? (laughs) It was for business, but Mm -hmm. in my heart, it was really for my life. Uh, Um, (laughs) I I love going to the US and I love going to California. So I was already traveling. My agency at the time had started working with BP in the US. So I had already started traveling for that job. And with Showcase, I started traveling to see new customers or prospects there. I was just doing about a total of three months of the year back and forth. Then the next year it became four months and the next it became five until I crept up to six months where I was cut off. Yeah, so California creeps into your soul, I think, and then you just want to keep going there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least Northern California, Napa Valley creeps into your soul. Yeah. So it started from business reasons. Is it just easier to connect with customers and to, you know, do sales calls and everything because of time zones or were there other reasons too? For me, it's about the face-to-face. Like Mm -hmm. I'm already, like this is such an enjoyable interview because I can see you. I feel like you're big enough on my screen that you could be in the room with me, like we're having a proper conversation. And as much as we have awesome tools for digitally doing business, to me, nothing beats face-to-face and nothing really beats it in the sales process. So yeah, I wanted to go and see customers face-to-face. I wanted them to feel, I mean, you have a little bit of an extra challenge when you're a foreign company that, you know, who are these people? Are they just a bunch of kids in a garage or are these legitimate people that I can trust? So it was about overcoming some of that. And yeah, that's how it happened. So what's next? What's on your mind in terms of next challenges or next plateaus? (laughs) Right. So at the moment, we 
I sort of touched on this a couple of times that we are working with oil and gas and convenience retail. So it's a small, you know, there's a segment of 200 businesses that we would like to work with. And so we are fully focused on building up that particular vertical for us in the US. And on the product side, we are working on some WYSIWYG features that customers want to build their own surveys and questionnaires and to showcase without coming through the development team. We're working on quite a few modernization projects with the back end and with the apps. What's the biggest challenge you're facing now from a business perspective? I think actually it's more of a growing pain than a challenge. So Uh we are to the point now where we've started to have to get a little bit more serious about governance. Uh So last year I attempted to acquire another company and Showcase has about 20 shareholders and the way that our constitution works is that shareholders have quite a lot of power in major transactions like acquiring another company. And in that process, I think we uncovered areas where I had been a little bit too loose in my shareholder communication mm-hmm. and keeping people up to date. The acquisition didn't happen. And so through that, we've really identified that we have now set up a board and we are working through being a bit more serious around our governance and our communication to our shareholders. So that's probably our biggest thing at the moment. Mm -hmm. This is one area where I don't do as good a job as I could either engaging. We don't really have a a very active board, but a board of advisors. And I, I always feel like I'm not doing as much as I could to keep everyone in the loop and to use them to their full potential. Because I think the day-to-day gets in the way a lot of the time. (laughs) And it can seem, I know for myself personally, it can seem like you just never get the opportunity unless you intentionally set aside time and probably regular time. Again, I'm not very good with this, but I can imagine that I would probably do a better job if I made an intentional regular effort in that regard. And you touched on something there that I think, as well as communicating with them, because they should be communicated with because they have put their money into your business. You touched on using them to their full potential. Mm-hmm. And I know we don't mean the word using the way that it, that kind of sounds, right. but these people have, have actually got, there are a wealth of probably skills and knowledge. And I think the more that we can communicate with them, the more, you know, they're essentially like a consultant that we don't pay that they mm-hmm. want to give to our business because they invested in it in the first place. So, Creating more opportunities to have conversations with them and tap into everything that they know, I think can really help our businesses. Yeah. Have you found a way to make sure that you're doing that? Yeah. So I have this wonderful, wonderful copywriter who works for me, Horizon Peak Consulting, a little plug. <laughs> she, <laughs> she sent me up this template, which is just a Google Doc and it's got about eight sections in it, sales and marketing, HR. And there's like at the start, there's a sort of a snapshot section at the end, there's a heads up for the next 90 days. And if I'm writing a customer email or I've had a team meeting, anytime that I've got a piece of information, I just copy and paste it over into that document or I quickly jot a note down after a team meeting. I do a quarterly comms. Mm -hmm. At the end of each quarter, I can just go back through all those notes and then I've made my update just as the quarter has gone by. So that has been really helpful for me because I don't really love to write. And so sitting down at a blank document can just be a little bit overwhelming Mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. It's like writing some sort of school report. So if I have this just natural flow of content coming in from day to day, 
it's made it much easier to produce those reports and keep everyone up to date. That's a really good tip. <laughs> so at Showcase Workshop, you have a forest relief fund, which to me, it makes perfect sense because your product saves paper. And to create an extension of that in terms of giving back really makes a lot of sense. How did you arrive at that? Where did the idea come from? And what's the impact been? So the idea came to me when I was actually walking in a forest. So I've never traditionally been much of one for exercise, but my husband and I, we kind of went on, I'm going to call it fat camp. We went on this health retreat because we both (laughs) put on quite a lot of weight and uh, we thought we needed to break the cycle. So for two weeks, we went to this kind of fat camp in southern Utah. And as part of the package, there was a day where you could go up to Zion National Park. We did that and we just were kind of overwhelmed by the natural beauty and the amazingness of this Mm -hmm. national park. And we have since been on a quest to see all 59. We're up to park number 21. And we have subsequently realized that not every park is created quite like Zion, Mm -hmm. but they all still have amazing natural beauty of their own. So when we got around to Sequoia, which is in the top, very top west of California, you're walking around under 1,400-year-old redwood trees, and some of them are even older than that. And when you walk around in trees, like that or those huge canopies of trees it's like I don't know it's like this overwhelming moment where you think these are so old and look how long they've been there here and look how good I feel under them and the temperature feels right and it all sort of came together in my head about it's all about trees and we need to have more trees and when I had started showcase when we had started showcase anyway it It had been a goal of ours, of all the founders, to find something positive that the business could be involved in other than just creating a job for all of us and our employees. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just naturally came together once we'd settled on trees. And obviously, we're, we're trying to save paper in the first place with Showcase. We wanted something that our clients could also be involved with. So. Their statistics show them how many page views they are having, and they know how many page views saves a tree. And so everybody gets to, I guess, gamify it a little bit as well. So you find that clients do actively engage in it? Yeah, we've got, um, well, one client in particular who is an organic food company. Mm-hmm. It is a line in their own reports. How many page views have we had that they share in their own company and how many trees did we save with Showcase? Right. And there's a certain threshold where our customers get the donation made in their name as well. And so some of our customers have really enjoyed that as well. Yeah, so to dig into the way it actually works is for every 8,500 pages, that's equivalent to saving a tree. And so every time a customer hits that threshold, you also plant a tree. Correct. Yeah. That's right. Right. So you're doubling the impact. You're saving one tree and planting another one. And it just, I hate to use the word synergy, but I'm having trouble thinking of a better (laughs) word right now in terms of, you know, impact with the product. You know, not that all impact isn't great, but there's something particularly resonates with me when you can discover an impact to have that does match the product as well as it does in your case. I think it's okay to use synergy when it's it's truly an instance of synergy. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so this is our first year of doing the program and we've almost planted a thousand trees this year. So we're really happy with that. Yeah, that's great. Millie, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experience. If people want to find out more about Showcase or um, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
So um, we have set up a page. It's showcaseworkshop.com forward slash giant robots slashing into other giant robots. And if you go there, you will be able to see examples of what our customers are doing with Showcase to see it in real life, um, sign up for a free trial and um, read about some of those customer case studies. I think you might be the first guest to ever set up a, a landing page just for their appearance. It's wonderful. You can subscribe to this show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm, and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Millie, thank you for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And to all you listeners out there, thank you for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.